um, because China's lost lost most of its spiritual teachings in the Cultural Revolution in the 1970s, 60s. Um, they destroyed their texts and closed most of the temples and killed a lot of the a lot of the remaining teachers and monks and nuns and so forth. And now that they're becoming really wealthy and you know modern in all these ways they're beginning to realize that something is missing. That you can have a fancy car and a big building and, you know, quite a bit of money, and is that it? And so there's a longing, at least among some people there, to have uh, their spiritual tradition back. Um, and so I've been part of this group from various places that are going back to temples and communities and saying, Here's your beautiful teachings. They're yours for thousands of years. We borrowed them. Maybe we messed them up a little bit, but anyway, here they are. Give them back to you. And there's a lot of appreciation for that. But I think it's something deeper than appreciation. I think there also is, at least in some part of the society, an understanding that if you have a society that doesn't also have deep spiritual values, that in some way there'll be um, not only something missing, but that that can be the cause of a society that suffers a lot. And I know, well, I guess I'll keep going with the story for a little bit. Um, I was in Singapore teaching and a group of people came up and talked about how many kids were committing suicide there. And then I worked with another group from Korea and the same <coughs> questions, a lot of suicide among young people because of the pressure take your exams and do well to get in the right track to, you know, succeed the ambition and so forth. And that's happening in China as well. So one of the places I talked was the largest psychology department in China. Um, and the conversation really was about what kind of society um, do you want to make? Because if you make a society that's based primarily on ambition and competition and aggression and outer success, even though those things have value, um, you're going to end up like Singapore and, and Korea with the problem that you're not going to have happy children and you're not going to have a happy next generation. And what does it mean to raise people with the values of respect and love as much as the, the encouragement to succeed somehow? It was, and there was a lot of nodding from the people in that. So it was just, it was very interesting and for me rather moving. Um, and then I was in May... Um, at the first White House Buddhist leadership gathering, um, which was also interesting. Um, and we had 120 different Buddhist leaders from around the country, um, and we met with some senior White House staff and people from the State Department. We did not meet with Mr. Obama. Um, he had a few other things on his plate that we got on Iran, Syria, something else was going on. Um, but there was a lot of interest in, and and at the end of the meeting, I sort of was able to give the summary talk to them. Um, I noted that the Buddha met with princes and kings and ministers and um, wealthy merchants and so forth. Very often when you read the Buddha's text, he talks to the mendicants and the monks and the nuns and, you know, farmers and villagers. But there's a whole series of texts where he meets with leaders. Um, and talked about what it means to have a just society, or a wise society, all these beautiful teachings. And I said, and if he were around, oh, he'd probably come over and there'd be a nice meeting with Obama and, you know, Buddha, mm -hmm. talking about how you do this. But 
since he's not here, we can speak for him in a certain way. And I read a little passage from a couple paragraphs from a text where the Buddha is speaking to a, a king um, who's wondering about conflict with his neighboring country. And the Buddha says, well, does that country and that country do the people gather together, speak to one another, and depart with respect for each other, whoever they are? Do they bring the spirit of mindfulness um, and care and attention to their activities in that culture? The king said, yes. Do they, um, do they follow the ancient and traditional teachings of wisdom? Yes, they do. Um, do they care for the vulnerable in that society? Uh, the women, the children, those who are in some, some way vulnerable? Yes, they do. Um, do they tend the natural world in a wise way? Which yes, they do. And do they encourage people to cultivate a personal <coughs> mindfulness and compassion, loving kindness? They do. He said, then they will prosper and not decline. And just so, he said to the, that king, if you follow these principles, so to your society, which, I mean, that's 2,600 years ago, but it certainly could be talking to us about treating each other with respect, given all the kinds of differences we have, or treating the environment respectfully, and, and so forth. Um, but the really interesting thing is that those are all good ideas, and I'm sure that those very smart people in the White House have thought of them themselves as well, or read them. Um, but the beautiful thing is that there actually are practices and trainings to do it. It's not just an idea, but incorporated in education, and incorporated in medicine, and incorporated in in the other areas that mindfulness is spreading to, there are actually ways to train oneself in compassion or loving kindness or mindful attention to inwardly and to the environment and so forth. And that's really the, the gem, the key, that it's possible for us as human beings to learn. So, um, you know, I'm doing things, I'm making online programs of this last year and kind of seeing if there are ways to get these trainings and teachings out more broadly. Um, I just finished teaching a 10-day retreat here, the first at Spirit Rock again after sabbatical, and it was absolutely delicious. You know, a hundred people came for their 10 days and they sat and walked, and the first few days they were tired and restless, and by the end there was that kind of Vipassana facelift where they all looked wonderful. Um, and the Buddha says, suppose that a traveler, dusty, scorched, and exhausted by heat, weary, parched, and thirsty, were to come upon a pond with clean, agreeable, cool water, transparent, shaded by trees, delightful, and were to plunge into the pond, bathe, and drink, and be relieved of all distress. So one, when one travels through this dusty world and encounters the Dharma, here's the teachings of the Dharma, the the way of practice, the liberating teachings of the heart, and undertakes to practice the Dharma of liberation, so too their weariness and fatigue and plight and distress is relieved, and well-being and stillness and great happiness refreshes them in body and mind. And the beautiful thing is that's kind of nice poetry, if not a good sales pitch or something like that. Um, but you actually see it on people who come in take the before and after pictures, um, and it was a very beautiful thing. 
So, here we are again on Monday night. You come in the middle of your own lives, and I appreciate that you take the evening to do it. And I was reflecting on what to speak about tonight, in part. Um, and then I was reading this new book <coughs> that, that just arrived today, called Love Everyone. It's the stories of Ram Dass's teacher, named Karoli Baba, from all the people who were with him. And there are a lot of great stories. And then somewhere in the introduction, I came across this paragraph, which I liked, and then it said, oh, written by Jack Cornfield. <laughs> so he said, he said, one of the preoccupations of people throughout all times and all cultures has been to find that which is sacred which is transcendental, which goes beyond the small sense of self, our jobs and relationships, the small sense of I. And in all cultures, this search is taken as a journey, <clears throat> the journey of a yogi or a healer or a shaman or a seeker or a wise person. And also, though separated by centuries and continents, it's always the same journey. It's the journey of going from the small, self-involved view of the world to an awareness of its vastness and mystery and our place in it. Um, and so, you know, when mindfulness spreads as it does, and it's a wonderful thing, sometimes it's more advertised, so to speak, for stress reduction or for um, better business management or, or other things like that, which are fine. You know, um, it it's becomes a useful kind of skill set in that way. But here we are as human beings incarnated in this human life, somewhat confusing, I would say. If anybody's got it all figured out, raise your hand and get your eight dollars back, right? <laughs> and I think we're all brought, in some way for different reasons, but maybe underneath for a deeper reason, which is that mystery of how do we navigate this life. Um, for some, it's um, the outer confusions and sufferings of the world, um, the worries and fears about climate change, and you'll see on that side of the room all those ribbons hanging to which you are invited to add your own ribbon. Those ribbons, the climate ribbons, have written on them the names of what you want to have protected in this time of climate change and they will be taken to Paris to the climate summit that's happening in about six weeks so if you can't go to Paris darling at least send your ribbons there right and your your heartfelt wishes of what it is that what matters to you but for some of us it's that for some of us it's watching the stream of refugees you know or the ongoing um, suffering of racism and Black Lives Matters or the, the seeking for justice or the worry about the loss of species and so forth. There is that and we carry it in our hearts because we're part of this web of life. Um, and we know very well that all the amazing outer developments of modern technology, the incredible internet, um, wired world, the 
and nanotechnology and biotechnology and space technology. I get every day Science Daily, and I look at every single day. It reports the 15, you know, most amazing papers or scientific research of that day, and it's just stunning to see how much. But most of it is outer. And it's, you know, here's the research in genetics, and here's star formation, and here's the research in, you know, um, fusion power, things like that. Not a lot about the research into the human heart. And it's very clear, I think, to anyone who quiets themselves, that the outer developments of humanity that are so remarkable have to be matched by the inner developments. We've talked about this all the time. That at this time, we are, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, a nation of nuclear giants and ethical infants. And that there is a, a requirement for us as humanity to somehow develop the sense of interconnection that is true with all the species and the life on this earth, not only to speak of all the different peoples of this earth, to develop a sense of deep compassion um, in our education, in our medicine, in all the ways that we um, treat one another, um, to develop a, a kind of wisdom as a species. Um, and it's not even all that advanced, you know. I mean, when you have kids in preschool or kindergarten and they're whacking each other with blocks, you say, um, use your words, you know. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great to talk to some of the world leaders <laughs> and just get them up to the preschool level? <laughs> so we know somehow in us that that's critical for our time and as, as, as humans, and, and we carry that. Um, at the same time, there's also our individual lives. Um, because incarnation is uncertain and insecure, always, subject to change. We live in a world in which periodically we are in conflict, or there's illness, or our family, or the speed of it, or the, you know, um, the kind of dilemmas that we find ourselves in. Or how do we just regulate ourselves and live wisely without some inner training and understanding, we get buffeted around like a boat without a rudder by all the incoming things of people's needs and our fears and our habits and, you know, all the things as a society and we can just get kind of washed away in that. But there also is in us, and I think it's what brings us together, a sense that there's another way. And so the Buddhist texts begin very often with the phrase, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are, remember your Buddha nature, remember your capacity to live with an awake and compassionate heart. And um, yesterday was the elections in Burma, um, for anyone paying attention to that part of the world, and I'm quite connected from teachers and colleagues and having being on the board of a foundation that I have sent me to Burma regularly. I've gone to the do involved in peace work there and clinics and all kinds of things like that. And um, the results, even though uh, there's some shady things happening there, um, surprise. <laughs> uh, that could happen in an election, not in our country. Never mind. Anyway. 
um, that uh, it looks like um, Aung San Suu Kyi's party um, uh, has actually had a, an immense win, which we hope the military, former military dictatorship will allow to go forward. And in one of these trips to Burma last year, um, Trudy, my partner, and I met with Aung San Suu Kyi, and um, she said, you know, a small group meeting with her, asking about her 17 years of house arrest and, you know, being um, more or less imprisoned by the military. Um, and she said, well, they never really had me in prison because I didn't hate them. And it was such a simple statement um, that had so much dignity and so much of the spirit of the freedom of heart that is possible for each one of us as human beings that yes there are these outer circumstances that happen to us but they are not the um, they don't define you they are not who you really are <coughs> Martini was a physician and the administrator of a medical school hospital her work often took her to the cafeteria where she got to know Annabelle. Annabelle, a Haitian woman who worked in the kitchen. Annabelle had worked there for 25 years and now in her 60s was supporting seven grandchildren. Petite and strong, Annabelle had lived through years of hardship and loss, yet each time Martina asked her how she was doing, Annabelle would turn up her face with a bright smile and say not just okay or fine or even great, but wonderful. It was audacious and true. You could feel it. In the drab cafeteria kitchen, endless hard work, a tough life, and wonderful. To Martina, Annabelle's voice became like a bell of mindfulness transforming the world. Whenever she felt frustrated or sorry for herself, she would smile like Annabelle and say, wonderful. So something in us also knows that there is a possibility of living with greater compassion, greater joy, greater centeredness and wisdom, which is really what the trains and practices offer. Maybe we could just talk about it as love. I mean, it's nice to talk about mindfulness and stuff like that, but a poem for you from Ellen Bass, who's a, just a great poet and lives in Santa Cruz and asked about maybe sharing a Monday night one of these weeks, so I hope maybe we'll figure it out. I admire her poetry. At gate C-22 in the Portland airport, a man in a broadband leather hat kissed a woman arriving from Orange County. They kissed and kissed and kissed, long after the other passengers clicked the handles of their carry-ons and wheeled briskly toward short-term parking. The couple stood there, arms wrapped around each other, like she'd just staggered off the boat at Ellis Island, like she'd been released from ICU, snapped out of a coma, survived bone cancer, made it down from Annapurna in only the clothes she was wearing. <laughs> Neither of them was young. His beard was gray. She carried a few extra pounds you could imagine her saying she had to lose. But they kissed lavish kisses like the ocean in the early morning, the way it gathers and swells around each rock again and again. 
We were all watching. Passengers waiting for the delayed flight to San Jose. The stewardess, the pilots, the aproned woman icing Cinnabons, the man selling sunglasses. We couldn't look away. We could taste the kisses crushed in our mouths. But the best part was his face. When he drew back and looked at her, his smile soft with wonder, almost as though he were a mother still open for giving birth, as your mother must have looked at you, no matter what happened after, if she beat you or left you or you're lonely now. You once lay there, the vernix not yet wiped off, and someone gazed at you as if you were the first sunrise seen from Earth. The whole wing of the airport hushed, all of us trying to slip into that middle-aged body. The woman's plaid Bermuda shorts, sleeveless blouse, glasses, little gold hoop earrings, tilting our heads up. And so another way to say all this other stuff that I've been talking about is how do we learn to love? And what that love asks of us, of attention and care. And so there are two important and... Um, complementary perspectives on this. One is the perspective of training, of inclining the attention. Neuroscience likes this, to what you pay attention. You develop new neurons and neural connections and you change your brain and you can read, you know, all those New York Times bestsellers like, you know, train the brain and change, change your, train your mind and things like that that are very good. Others will be cruel, we shall not be cruel, thus we will incline the mind. Others will take what is not given, we shall abstain from taking what isn't given, thus we will incline the mind. Others will speak falsehood, we shall abstain from false speech and speak kindly, thus we will incline the mind. Others will act maliciously, we shall abstain from maliciousness, thus we will incline the mind. Others will be arrogant. unmindful. Others will lack kindness. Others will forget wisdom. There's a whole long list of them. In each of these, we shall not be arrogant. We shall not be unmindful. We shall not lack in, lack in kindness. Thus, we shall incline the mind. And this quality of inclining the attention in another way, in another language, is watering the seeds of goodness in ourselves paying attention to the states of mind and heart, and with that attention, inclining ourselves toward that which is beneficial. Thich Nhat Hanh likes to use that image of watering seeds, um, and that you have all kinds of potential in the heart and mind, and which seeds will you water, and which will you tend in a beautiful way. And if you have this image, then it's not meditation as a great grim duty. I have to do this, I know I work out at the gym, and I go to therapy, and you know, I've got a good trainer, and whatever. Um, it's much more about undertaking this spiritual practice as a nourishment of what's beautiful in you. And there's a story um, of a doctor who did an eight-week training in compassion, loving-kindness, mindfulness, I think one of the ones that we're offering at Stanford now. 
and he went in burnt out, kind of um, grieving in some way for what had happened to his vision as a healer, and now I'm working in the modern medical system, which speeds to see one person after another and look at the computer more than you get to look at the patients, and all the things that have made medicine in some ways much, much more difficult, as you know. Um, and he was just tired of the whole thing and kind of short with people and pressured. And he did his training in loving kindness and compassion and mindfulness. And after his eight-week class, he describes going back into his office. And partway through the day, one of his older patients, an old woman, came in and said, Doctor, what happened to you? Something's different. Are you in love or something? <laughs> and he said, what happened is that through the training of compassion and loving kindness and mindfulness over the course of those weeks, he said, I, I refound my love of medicine and my love of humanity. So the beautiful thing is that it's possible to train ourselves or to nourish or to water these seeds. And there's this famous text from one of the descriptions of the Buddha early wandering. She says, early in the morning on his alms round, the Blessed One or the Buddha or whatever you want to call the guy, approached an area being plowed in the springtime by um, Bharadvaja, who was a wealthy, upper-class Brahmin, distributing food to all the workers on his ranch or his farm. And when the wealthy Brahmin saw the Buddha coming for alms, he said, Monk, I plow and sow, or at least I have my people plow and sow, and having done so, then I eat. Why don't you plow and sow, and then you too will be able to eat? So it's sort of like a little bit of a put-down. Okay, you're a mendicant, you want my food. I work for it, you know. Get a job, basically, he's saying. <laughs> Imagine, right? A little uppity, uppity there. And then the Buddha replied simply, I too, O Brahman, plow and sow, and having done so, I eat. And that got his curiosity. Then he said, you claim to be a plowman, but I see no plow. Tell me, what kind of plowing is it that you do? And he replied, faith is the seed, and kindness the rain. Clarity, my plow and yoke, conscience, my guide, mind is the harness, wakefulness is the plow blade. Wise in action and speech and moderate in my life, I use truth to weed and cultivate release. Wise effort is the oxen drawing the plow steadily toward the sure heart's release, freedom without regret. This is how I plow, and it bears the fruit of deathlessness. Whoever plows in this way will become free of all sorrow and distress. And the Brahmin said, well, all right, let a, the venerable monk is indeed a plowman, let us feed him. And so they put food into his bowl, as the story is told, and it hisses out like it's steam immediately, won't even stay in the bowl, um, which is a really lovely kind of mythological image that I've talked about before, so some of you have heard me explain this in some way. But for those who haven't, do you have any guess why that image is there? Any farmers? Come on, politicians? Okay. When you plow a furrow, the plow gets hot. 
by the end of a furrow of cutting open the earth, if you touch the steel of a plow blade, it's really, really hot. And so that symbolism that was that his bowl, which was his plow, if you will, the oxen of effort and so forth, was like his plow, and you couldn't even put food into it, just to show, all right, this is the real deal or something. <laughs> I like it just because it's a poetic kind of mythological symbol of something that's very deep. What does it mean to, to turn over the soil of the heart and plant beautiful seeds, the seeds of faith and understanding, and water them with your own conscientious attention and the rain of kindness and so forth. And, you know, the attention, it's called Dioniso Manasikara, which means wise attention. Um, Apamada, the kind of attention to the garden of your heart that means a caring attention to attend with care. And of course, as you do, obstacles will come, right? You do it in, when you make a garden. There's bugs and insects that want to eat it, and you know there's drought and there's weeds and things, and you have to weed it and you have to prune it and you have to, you know, water it and all those kinds of things. So that's part of the training. It's not that it's a, a bad thing or a problem. <coughs> when my teacher Ajahn Chah came back to England after leaving the monks and. Um, an apartment in London, they'd been invited, several of his teach, his senior Western monks, to start a temple that's now going beautifully in England, but this was 35 years ago or something. Um, and he left them there. They were training in the forests of Thailand, but all they got was like a little flat in the busy street in London. That's what they had at first. Later they got, people got them a beautiful forest to be in. But, um, and he came back after a year and he said, how's it going? You know, are you getting along? Do you have enough food to eat? Yes, people are giving us food. Are you able to practice? Yes. Are you getting along? Well, they said, we're just doing beautifully, no problem. And he looked at them a little surprised. And he said, well, then there's not going to be any wisdom grown here, is there? <laughs> First of all, he knew it wasn't true. <laughs> but secondly, it's the very obstacles and difficulties that become the place where compassion grows and where wisdom and where understanding grows. And the idea isn't that you make, you know, the beautiful garden and you take a picture in House and Garden magazine at the right time of day with a good photographer and kind of clean it up and things like that. Anybody who has a real garden, there's the compost and the, it's, it's always a work in progress. As the carpenter turns on the lathe the wood that will make the furniture as the farmer channels, channels water to their land. Um, as the cook seasons the porridge so that it is flavorful for all who would eat it, so too bring your attention to this heart and mind and season it beautifully and, and tend it with care, says the Buddha. And you plant good seeds and as Thoreau said, I don't believe that anything will come if there's not a seed there. But convince me you have a seed that you have planted, and I am prepared to expect miracles. So you plant good seeds, and then something beautiful comes of it. The Prison Garden Project of Kathy Sneed um, was started in 1984 out of concern for the soul death of the local men 
who were stunted by imprisonment in the San Francisco County Jail. Um, so she began a project. She collected seeds and she collected equipment to help them plant a garden. And though there used to be a kind of farm there, actually, so there was plenty of land. And in the jail, the men were invited to grow vegetables in a plot behind one of the prison buildings. And after the fundraising, she got them seeds and mulch and fertilizer to be able to grow a garden with their own hands, to be responsible for its blossoming, to overcome insects and drought, brought out the best in these thrown-away people. It awakened a connection to and caring for something outside of themselves. Kathy tells about one macho giant saying, don't step on my babies as she walked through the garden. The prison wardens were amazed by the change. The garden became so important to those who cared for these patches that their lives began to revolve around them. In fact, when the time came for these men to be released from prison, some purposefully recommitted petty crimes or violated parole so they could get back to their gardens. That's when Kathy um, was led to the next inevitable step, the garden project for ex-prisoners and so on. But it's really us. It's our, it's our work as well. And so you're asked in your own spiritual life and practice, what would it take to nourish most deeply the garden of your own heart? What helps you? What needs weeding and pruning? What needs watering and nourishing? And when you meet obstacles, you know, how do you work with them? I mean, you just sat, and some of you were sitting quietly in deep calm and samadhi and bliss, um, and some of you weren't. <laughs> Instead, you had doubt or, you know, confusion or reruns of the day or plans for another or worries about this or anger about something or grief or the traumas that we carry, or just your own stories. And what you learn in this inner gardening is that you can trust awareness itself, that awareness is big enough, this loving awareness, that you can name what's there, oh, this is sadness, or this is grief, or this is anger, or this is confusion. And the minute that you make the space enough to name it with a loving awareness, who you are shifts, you're no longer caught in the middle of it, there comes some spaciousness or some perspective or some ease. Um, there's actually a practice in which one is invited to imagine that every other human being in the world is enlightened except one. Guess who? And they're all acting just the way that they do on purpose to help you find the perfection of compassion and loving kindness. They're giving you the perfect teachings so that you can awaken your own Buddha nature. Now, I tell you all this as if I have mastered it. Not. You know, this very day and yesterday, I was in conflict with some of my esteemed colleagues over some proposed things that we're supposed to do, and um, while I intended to call their approach to it lame, I just said, you're being very timid about this. But I was, they heard me say lame, even though it didn't come out of my mouth, because I wasn't really that respectful. And the result of it was not very good. And so now I'm sitting and going, oh yeah, hmm, that was not maybe the most skillful way about this, even though, of course, I thought I was right, you know. Um, so this is how you practice. 
you know, and you fall down, and you go, oh, yeah, made a little mess again, and then you weed it in water, and you kind of try to set it right as you can. And basically you trust that again and again you can bring your best intention and your awareness to what's here, and more and more you live from that place, rather than living from the place of reactivity and entanglement and fear and confusion. Now the other part that is the complement to this training that we do um, as we sat this evening and as you may have a practice at home of sitting in the mornings or in the evenings and kind of centering yourself and so forth, is the understanding that I like to call fruition or resultant practice. That you're actually not trying to get somewhere in time and that you don't have to wait to get enlightened, but rather that the timelessness, the spaciousness, the vastness, the love that we seek is always here already. It is in fact who we are. And so there's a beautiful text where this um, lay person who's been a follower of the Buddha for quite a number of years and very devoted dies and somebody says, what's going to happen to that man? And the Buddha said, oh, he is a stream enterer, which is the phrase they use for somebody who's entered the stream of awakening. And they said, how could this be? You know, we never saw him meditate much or, you know, he didn't do the outer things that made him look like he was some great yogi or something. And the Buddha said he had very deep faith in the teachings. He had a deep understanding of the importance of wisdom, compassion, and so forth. And he was dedicated to it. And he had as surely as anyone over these years entered the stream of awakening. So it comes in all these different forms. Um, and mostly, it's um, an awakening to mystery. Because you all know this. You know it from that walk in the mountains where you had that moment that you could look around and it's not far away and you say, wow, human life, earth, trees, sky, isn't this amazing, this vastness? Or you know it from making love or you know it from listening to a great piece of music, you know, or you know it from being there at the birth of a child, your own giving birth or someone else, or at the moment of death which is an extraordinary moment, and you go, oh wait, hmm, all my little petty worries and things like that, there's something mysterious and vast going on that we're a part of. Um, and we all have had those experiences, as surely as we know our own name. And then the question of practice isn't so much I'm training myself to become a better, wiser, more compassionate, blah, 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 you know, person, good Buddhist, or whatever, bury your friends and family. Um, um, but you're remembering something that you've already known, and that is, uh, that is absolutely true. And then you remember it also, um, like that poem that I read from the airport, Gate C-22, um, when there's love. I've been teaching this last 
couple of years, done a bit of teaching with Ramnos in Hawaii, who's still amazingly teaching at 84 now in his wheelchair and going in and out of physical problems. But over the years, um, as somebody who had an incredibly articulate and brilliant kind of mind, after his major stroke and the aphasia where he can't speak so well, he doesn't live in his mind much anymore. He mostly just lives in his heart. And he's about the most loving person that I know now in my life. And people will come on the retreats with him or come here, and he just looks at them. There's a phrase in India called the glance of mercy, where the guru looks at you with so much love, you know, in a way that you've never been seen before. Um, and they just love you exactly as you are. And you go, wow, I don't have to be anything or do anything. I, I, I just am loved. And it changes you in some very, very deep and beautiful way. And it's not about some ideal of how you're supposed to be. But your unique body and mind and spirit and psyche and problems and neurosis and um, majestic quirkiness. And, um, who you actually are, where there's never been one like you in the entire galaxy, and never will be again, and you get loved. And it, it means everything. from Guillaume Apollinaire. Now and then, it's good to pause in our pursuit of happiness and just be happy. <laughs> and so from this perspective, instead of waiting to the development of these qualities in the garden, there's also a sense that the garden is already bearing fruit within you. Or Laurie Chapman, I like to read. She writes, I like nothing more in the world than just listening to the world, sitting on my ass, being happy, doing nothing. <laughs> and it's not my fault that I have this attitude because I happen to have an amazingly comfortable ass. <laughs> it may not look like much, but if you could sit on this baby for two minutes, you'd realize that getting off this ass would be a crime against me. <laughs> And you start to realize that it's not about perfecting yourself or making yourself different. But it is about stepping back in some way or stepping into expanding yourself to become the field of loving awareness, of mindfulness and compassion that is your true nature. To be what Ajahn Chah, my teacher, called the one who knows, the place of wisdom and love in you. And then things follow. Yeah, you make mistakes, but you love that too, and you go on. Um, and that gets supported just as the training gets supported by having daily sittings or being with others and so forth. Um, this gets supported by going out and looking at the stars, you know, or watching the sunset or the clouds. I love it when the rainy season is about to begin and we get clouds again, you know, because we've had all those dazzling blue sky days and then all of a sudden we get all these interesting clouds and it's a beautiful thing you know or just looking at the toes of a baby those tiny little fingernails and go wow look the whole thing is so complete this whole package another person came out you know 
or a leaf on a tree, and the miraculous thing, the chlorophyll, remember your high school biology, turns light into sugar. I mean, what kind of planet is this? That light gets turned into sugar, which then turns into your body, you know, then various creatures eat it, and then sometimes we eat those creatures, or we eat you know, we whatever, or we don't eat them, we, we respect them, but we eat, them. We, eat the same, we eat the same vegetables, they do whatever, whatever your diet is, we're not going to diet right now. But somehow, this planet is one in which green leaves turn light into sugar. I mean, who designed this? Fantastic. Or language that I can say Golden Gate Bridge and you see traffic. <laughs> it's nobody knows how this works really it is so mysterious and to sit and allow a sense of vastness and mystery is a really beautiful thing and so you can also trust this I mean because it's there for you in the beginning of life when you're a a young toddler going around and being introduced to what a tree looks like and what, you know, dirt tastes like and what grass is, you know, feels like. And, I mean, that's the thing. Little ones, they kind of, wow, look at this planet I got born on. Isn't it amazing? Everything is interesting. And you can take a two- or three-year-old to the Grand Canyon, right? And they'll pick up a little rock, and that will be as interesting as the big hole in the ground, you know? That, isn't that amazing? Look at that red stone. There's just so much of a sense of wonder about life. And so you can make your attention as wide as the sky, as vast as the sky, and at the same time as fine as a grain of rice. Careful with each thing. And both of these are true. And something in you, again, knows that this is reality knows that this mystery of being born in human incarnation um, is not something you solve with some ideas or something to get through each day and check all the things on your list, I got all those done, now I can go to sleep. We're here for something more than that, something really quite marvelous. To see, to appreciate, to tend with beauty, to love one another. Um, and this too is really trustworthy. So again, on the trip to Burma last, last year, um, I've told this story, um, we went to visit this group that I took around Burma to visit clinics and you know hospices and things way out in the remote areas that we were working on to kind of bring support to schools and orphans and various things like that around the country. We went to a monastery up near the China border, a nunnery actually, run by this wonderful nun in her 40s. Um, and in her 20s, she had gotten cancer, and it was metastasized, so the cancer was in lots of her body. And they wanted to do surgery, which she refused. And if you got to see a hospital up in Upper Burma, Burma 20 years ago, with so little equipment and really very, very little um, anything that would allow it to be sterile, really. Um, you would refuse surgery too, probably. It just it, it wasn't there. And so instead she went out and she found in the jungle um, 
an old woman, an old nun, who was also an herbalist. Um, and she began to work with her, and the, the herbalist gave her these purgatives and these very powerful medicines, and said, but you have to match this with some deep and long meditation to heal yourself. And so she said, I sat for a while. And he said, oh, how long did you sit? And he said, oh, two years. Um, and well, what did you do? She said, I sat all day and night, basically, for a couple of years. And sometimes I'd be sitting there in the first year and my body would be on fire. It would be burning. And I would feel the cancer in all the cells and the nerves. And it would just, and I would let myself burn and burn and burn and bring a kind of purifying attention of awareness to it all. And then after a year, year and a half, it started to simmer down. You know, and after two years, I got up and the cancer was gone. Not to say that this would work for everyone, mind you, but it worked for her. So she came back to the town in which she, she lived. And people began to notice that she had changed. Um, and would you teach me, they asked her and so forth. So she began to teach a bit what she had learned. And then, um, and then the little community started to grow around her, and our foundation began to support her. Uh, and she eventually built this monastery, this temple, where she um, trains primarily women. It's all women actually who come there. Um, and the thing that one of the things that interested me, it was full, lots and some hundreds of women is that um, she takes people with mental ill, people with mental illness, um, homeless people, people with the kind of the trauma of there's a lot of wars along the border in the different states with the central government, the Chin and the Koran and so forth. They've been fighting people with um, PTSD and have been, you know, they've been in war, they've been tortured, um, battered women, she takes them all. And she teaches them, bring, puts them on retreat and teaches them to meditate. Now, I would be really reluctant, even though I've worked a lot with trauma and with vets and things like that, to say, okay, mentally ill and vets right out of the war and they're trying to come and sit and meditate. Um, you know, because it takes a lot of support in different ways to even make that possible. Not in her case. She said, you come and you sit and I will teach you. And there was something about her spirit that was so strong. She had so much, I don't know what you would call it, titanium or something like that, just uh, unshakable in her, that people would come and say, my mind is crazy, or I've been through this terrible trauma, or I don't know if I can do this. And she said, I did it, you can. You will sit, and you will face that, and you will make, you know, you'll make your prayers, and you will do your compassion and mindfulness practice, and you will learn to do this. And you could feel it from, you couldn't say no, because she had done it. And so there's this most amazing thing to sit in this room with all these women who've been through all kinds of things with such a sense of dignity among them that she had somehow communicated to them. And that's really in everybody, even, even those who'd suffered in that way. And as we were going down the stairs from the top big meditation hall, an old woman with hardly any teeth and a little bent over came over to us on the stairs and grabbed Trudy on her arm. Didn't speak much English, but caught both of our attention. She wanted to say something, and we turned and looked at her. 
And she pointed to her heart and she said, in English, peace of mind, peace of mind. And you could see that she looked like she'd lived a really hard life. And she'd come to a place where she had learned to be peaceful in her heart. And it was, um, it was really striking, considering how, what she looked like and what she must have lived through. This is possible for you in your own heart, partly through the trainings, if you want that metaphor of watering the seeds and working, weeding, planting and working with the obstacles, or partly simply in the way of tending yourself with um, attention and love and joy and realizing that you actually can live with a free heart exactly where you are. And you'll get caught up and you say, no, who I am is much more mysterious and vast than this. And take a few breaths and come back to the, to the beauty and the love that is actually who you are. And I know I like to talk about this, but when, um, when the Dalai Lama does his big teachings and all these people come, he will also often go down if, they, if the security people um, let him. And, and just greet people and take their hands and, you know, the line of people who are waiting. Um, and the beautiful thing about it, as I've said, is that he, um, when he takes your hand, he doesn't let go. You know, he'll grab your hand and hold it. And it's not like a politician getting through so many babies that you kiss and so many things and sort of moving on. He holds your hand and you stand there and smile and oh it's the Dalai Lama isn't this great and he does have good vibrations I have to say really cool guy you know and really quite wonderful and you're thinking wow I'm here with the Dalai Lama and he's just looking at you and then you think it's time to move on and he holds your hand tighter and then you look and it's like he really wants you to get it he wants you to get that here we are together in this moment really fully and when you get it oh Mm -hmm. Then he smiles or giggles or whatever he does, and he moves on to the next person. So we also catch it from one another in this beautiful way. So I want you to close your eyes for a moment. You don't have to change your posture, it's really short. I mean, I know you're good meditators at all. And I want to ask you a very simple reflection. At this time in your life, what would be the most, what would be a really helpful thing in tending the garden of your heart? Or to put it in another language, what would be a really helpful thing for you to remember the vastness and the mystery of, of life when you get caught? Now I want to ask you to do one more thing, if you're comfortable doing it. 
and that is to kind of imagine that you could summarize what came to you in just a little phrase. Maybe it would be to sit in the morning, or maybe it would be to remember to be kind, or maybe it would be to read this, or I don't know what it would be, to take a vacation, or, or to apologize to someone, or who knows what you came up with. Um, but to turn to the, a person sitting next to you, and quietly and respectfully allow them to tell you their one little phrase, and then you can bow to them, wish them well with that, and then tell them your phrase. If you're comfortable, go ahead and try it. So saying it out loud gives it a certain
may you find a way to enter the pond of clear, agreeable, cool water, transparent, shaded by trees and delightful, plunge into it and bathe and drink of the dharma, of the wisdom of your own heart, and be relieved of distress and find delight.